This morning we begin a new sermon series, 24 Hours. It's the last 24 hours before Jesus died. And it's been said about these 24 hours that there's no single event that has changed more lives around the world than this one. Jesus was hoped for to be the Messiah, uh, but when people realized he wasn't meeting their expectations, he was despised and rejected for all of humanity. And uh, the 24 hours that um, we're going to take some time uh, to look at have been described as the greatest day in history. And so we're going to take some uh, time over the next few weeks leading up to Easter as we go through Lent. We're going to take different scenes from those 24 hours, and we're going to look at what does Scripture have to say about that experience and what can we learn from Jesus. Even now, thousands of years later, what does it mean for us today? This morning we're going to begin by thinking about waiting. Waiting. Waiting can be a joyful experience. It can be something that's anticipated as being very positive. Think about uh, when, you were with, when you were waiting to be 16 years old so you could drive for the first time. That's a lot of anticipation, a lot of hope. Think about when you're a small child and you're waiting for Christmas morning to finally arrive. That's the good kind of waiting. Or there can be waiting that can be agonizing between hope and dread when you're anxiously waiting the outcome of something that maybe is causing you anxiety, like waiting for the results of a biopsy. Or a child waiting for some unknown consequences because the child has misbehaved and been caught. Now, I have a lot of experience in the last regard. And so I'm going to share a story with you when I was younger. I was in the third grade, and I invited a couple of my friends over after school to my house. And we went downstairs to go play. And after a while, we became bored. And so we began to do what many third grade boys do when they're bored. We began to wrestle. And so as we began to wrestle, at some point, you know, we're trying to, to, to show our physical dominance over the other two. And, and so it kind of escalated. And at some point, I don't know when, it moved from wrestling to all-out brawling downstairs in the basement. And I'm sure we began to make quite a bit of noise. I and mean, all of a sudden, my mom was coming down the stairs, and I think we realized we we're in trouble. And she comes into the room, and we all stand up, and, and she sees, like, sweaty, messy boys blood running out of our noses, bruises on our arms and our faces, and we were in for it at that point. And my mom uh, separated us, and she took us each into individual rooms. She told the other two of my friends, she said, I'm going to call your parents and have them come pick you up because we've been having a little bit of problem today. And I saw the fear in their eyes when they realized their folks were going to learn what was happening. And then my mom came into my room, and she delivered the words of uh, great um, outcome. She said, basically, I'm so disappointed in you. Do you remember those words whenever your parents would tell them? I'm so disappointed in you. And then she goes on and she said, I want you to think about what you've been doing and do so until your father comes home a little while later. And then he will decide your punishment with me. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be terrible. And I remember that one hour while I'm waiting for my dad to come home. That was the worst hour, I think, of my life up until that point. Began thinking about all these different things that my parents might do to me. And, I, you know, it was interesting that the, the dread or the fear that I was experiencing that one hour had a greater impact on me than the consequences. I don't even remember what the consequences were, but I could still remember the fear that I felt when my mom said, we're going to wait for your dad to get home. Now, Jesus, in this scene in, in, the, in the garden, he goes to the garden with significant anticipation. He, however, has not done anything wrong. Whatever the consequences he will face, he will face because of what we have done wrong. And so his 24 hours of passion, of suffering, begins with a time of prayer in the garden, hoping, waiting, but hoping that there can be another 
way. And they were told they went to a place called Gethsemane. It was on the Mount of Olives that was just east of uh, Jerusalem. It was down a, uh, a big hill from Jerusalem across the valley and up the other side of the mountain. And on the lower side of the mountain were thousands of olive trees. And Gethsemane means olive press. And there was a place where this was a place where the oil was squeezed out of the olives to be used. It's an interesting image thinking about what Jesus is doing in the garden and what he's preparing to do as he goes on to the sacrifice. And there was a garden there, we're told, and it was a place that was familiar to the disciples because Jesus had often gone there. And Jesus asked most of his disciples to sit down while he went and he prayed. And then he took three of them, Peter, James, and John, and he, and he went along a little farther with them. And these three were kind of the inner circle of his disciples. They were present when Jesus had healed Jairus' daughter. They were with him when he was on the mountain and he had been transfigured. And so now they're with him again at a key moment in his life. Now, it's also interesting that each of these guys had pledged loyalty, a special loyalty to Jesus. You might remember that Peter had boasted just a few minutes before that even if all the others around him had fa- would fail Jesus, desert him, he never would. Even if I have to die with you, he says, I'll never disown you. And then back in chapter 10 of Mark, uh, John, James and John were told, uh, had come to Jesus and asked him if they could have seats of honor at his glory with him. And Jesus responded by saying, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you ready to receive the baptism that is going to be my baptism? And he was referring to his suffering and his death. They didn't understand that, but they boldly claimed, we can. We can do it, Jesus, no problem. Now, in a sense, Jesus has given all three of these guys a chance to back up their hollow claims. And, of course, we know they fail in different ways. And as I study this message about this passage of Jesus in the garden, I was really moved by by what Jesus went through that night. Uh, This was really the beginning of his passion and his suffering for us. And the English words in verse 33 don't really begin to convey the depth and strength of the Greek. It says that he began to be deeply distressed and, and troubled. And this refers to the greatest possible degree of horror and suffering that he's experiencing. It was psychological anguish in the garden. Jesus as emotional as the spiritual suffering began before the physical suffering began. I want you to look at verse 34. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said, this is more than I can bear. We might even translate it that this is killing me. And we use that phrase in our culture so flippantly, you know, like we say, the sliver in my finger is killing me or my knees, they're, they're killing me. But Jesus was not exaggerating. In the garden when he expressed this. You know, people we know from studying have died from grief and Jesus was so close to it. He told the three disciples, stay here and keep watch. I want you to keep watch. And he went on a little further to pray by himself. And we're told that Jesus falls flat on his face on the ground and he, and he began to plead with God that the hour might pass from him. That is, he didn't want to go through what lay ahead. He, he had begun to anticipate the horror of it. And he, and he prayed an amazing prayer in this passage. It's an awesome prayer. And it wasn't polished. It wasn't, it wasn't polite and scrubbed and formal. I want us to look at verse 36 where he prays uh, this prayer. Jesus says, he cries out, Abba. This is a really intimate Aramaic term for, for father. We could translate it daddy. 
But no Palestinian Jew at that time would have ever considered of calling God Abba. That just wouldn't have entered their mindset. And yet Jesus is calling out Daddy. It shows out this, this shows this special relationship that Jesus had with God. It was closer. It was more intimate than anyone had ever known. And Jesus had been so strong when he talked to his disciples about the coming suffering and death. But now, as he's in the garden facing the reality, he comes to, to God as a child who's overwhelmed. He's throwing himself into his daddy's arms. He's crying out, Abba, Daddy. Everything is possible for you. He's affirming God's sovereignty and God's power. He knows that nothing is impossible for God. And, and there is, therefore, this slim sliver of hope that, that maybe there's some way out of this. He says, take this cup from me. And in other words, I don't really want to go through with this. Is there any other way, Father? Can't you fix it I don't, so that I don't have to do this? And yet, as, a, as difficult and as horrible as the prospect of his suffering is, Jesus submits entirely to the Father's will. Not what I will, but what you will. As much as I'd like it to be some other way, Father, I'm willing to do this as, if this is what you choose for me. It's an incredible choice, as Jesus says. I'm willing to go through all of this if this is what you want, Father. And doing the Father's will is more important to him than anything that he wants for himself. And I just want us to think about it. We might compare that to ourselves you know are we able to how often are we able to to set aside what we want if it's in contrary opposition to what god wants you know do we do that do we do that consistently are we able to do that when we recognize hey i'd like this but this is what god's will is for my life and for the situation are we willing not just to make a commitment but to surrender to god it's literally turning our life over to him And no doubt Jesus prayed more than just these few words that we have in Mark, but we don't know how long. It could have been an hour or so. But these words are literally kind of the substance of his prayer, his whole prayer. And as he takes a break to pray, he goes and he checks on his disciples. He found them sleeping, right? Imagine his dismay. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for just one hour? It harkens back to... Uh, a conversation he had with his disciples just a day or two before. In Mark chapter 13, he was talking about the signs of the end of the age, and he said, No one knows the day or the hour. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. Therefore, keep watch, he says, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to do to you, I say to everyone, watch. He had just spoken about that a day or two before. He had called for that same watchfulness here in the garden as he prays. He says, stay here and keep watch. But the disciples had fallen asleep. They were so exhausted. I'm sure they were confused, probably distressed. They were worn out that they couldn't keep their eyes open. And what an awful feeling it is to know that you should stay awake. But you just can't. You've probably been there as well as I have. You just can't help it. You know, your eyes won't focus. Your mind won't stay engaged. You can't fight it off any longer. Hopefully that experience is not when you're driving down the road, but maybe you've had that experience at other moments. And Jesus challenges them in that situation. He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. But he also understood their struggle. He said, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. 
Mark tells us he goes away again, and he prays the second time, and again when he comes back, there they are sleeping. And Mark says they didn't know what to say to him. They were speechless. No doubt they, they felt terrible about falling asleep. They had no excuse. They just couldn't stay awake. So he went and he prayed a third time, and again when he comes back, they're asleep. But now the time has come. Are you still sleeping and resting? He says, enough. The hour has come. Remember, he had prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him, but now he knows. It can't and it won't. There's no escaping it. He has to face it. The hour has come. The garden was located close enough to the city that even as he prayed, some people speculate he might have been able to see the torches of the party that was able to, was coming to get him as they came down the hill, moved across the valley, and then went up the side of the mountain. And he says, look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. And those are the last words that are recorded from Jesus to the disciples in the Gospel of Mark. What can we learn from all of this? What does the story really mean for us? I just want to note a few lessons as we look at this passage. I want us to think about a couple of things this morning and then hopefully some things that we can contemplate as we go through our week this week and we think about this word and this message. The first thing I want us to see from this passage is that Jesus was willing to endure this agony because he loves us. He was innocent. There was nothing in his life that deserved this suffering and this death. He's the only person who didn't deserve it. And he willingly stepped up and endured it for all of us. Max Lucado is a really well-known Christian author, and he tries to capture the depth of Jesus' love in the scene in the garden with these words. He said, he'd rather go to hell for you than to go to heaven without you. The Bible says literally that Christ suffered when he died for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners that he might bring us safely home to God. He was innocent. We are guilty. And yet he paid the price that set us free. Last week, Doug spent some time in 1 John looking at at how much God really loves us. Uh, 1 John is a well-known letter that speaks a lot about God's love for us and to think about this great and unconditional, amazing love that God continues to demonstrate for us. And one of the verses that came out of last week's message, I wanted to share this week too, when we think about how much Christ really does love us. It's 1 John 3.16. It says, we know what real love is because Christ gave up his life for us. His father didn't compel him. He didn't have to do it, but he decided to go ahead with it because of his love for us. In John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And he goes on later in the Gospel to clarify, he says, no one can take my life from me. I lay down my life voluntarily. He did it because he loves us. The second thing I want us to look at is that Jesus opens the way of salvation because he loves us. This is to me a a really powerful insight. You know, there are many people who challenge the idea that Jesus is the only way of salvation. It seems kind of arrogant and distasteful. Um, It's almost exclusive to make such a claim. Doesn't it, if we look at it, doesn't it discount and demean all the other world's religions to make such a claim? How can we even suggest that Jesus is the only way to God? 
Wouldn't it be a whole lot easier in our world to say, it doesn't matter. Whatever religion you choose is fine. You can have your way and I can have mine and we'll all agree that they're all equally valid ways to God. But I want us to think about Jesus in the garden. He's in this horrible agony and he's pleading with his father, I don't want to do this. Is there, isn't there any other way? And the father must be in agony as well as he watches his beloved son suffer. Jesus is praying, take this cup, take it away from me. And all he gets is silence from heaven. Father, you can do anything. Relieve me of this burden. Again, silence. Jesus is desperate for some other way. And the father is silent. Why is he silent? Because there is no other way. Would he have allowed his son to endure this horror and then afterwards said, well, thanks, son, for doing that. Now people can choose you as well as lots of other religions in the world to be saved. If people want to come to me by living a good life and earning their way, they can. And if they want to trust you for their salvation, they can do that as well. That's ludicrous. If there is another way, and Jesus was asking for another way, why would the Father have remained silent? What an insult it is to Jesus' suffering to claim that he is one option among many other options. It helps me understand Jesus' claim in John chapter 14, verse 6, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If he's saying there's no other way to God besides Jesus. Again, Acts 4.12, the scripture says, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to save them. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, he says, There is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and people, and he is the man, Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that Jesus is the only way to God. This prayer of Jesus in the garden is, for me, a powerful argument that there is no other way. He begged for another opportunity, another option, and God was silent. And so Jesus surrendered, and he went to the cross And he opened up the way of salvation because he loves us. And finally, I want us to note that God sacrificed his son. God sacrificed his son because he loves us. We said earlier that Jesus surrendered his life because he loves us. That's powerful. But beyond that, God willingly gave up his son for us. Here's what Max Lucado wrote about this. He said, consider what God did. He gave his son. His only son. Would you do that? Would you offer the life of your child for someone else? I wouldn't. There are those for whom I would give my life, but ask me to make a list of those whom I would kill. Uh, I would kill my daughter. The sheet would be blank. I don't need a pencil. The list has no names. But God's list contained the names of every person who ever lived. For this is the scope of his love, and this is the reason for the cross. He loves the world. Aren't you glad the verse does not read, For God so loved the rich, for God so loved the famous, for God so loved the thin? It doesn't. Nor does it state, For God so loved the Europeans or Africans, the sober or the successful, the young or the old. How wide is God's love? Wide enough for the whole world. Are you included in the world? Then you are included in God's love. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans. He says, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? 
He means if God is for you, who can stand, who stands, who can be against you? Who cares? It doesn't matter if God is for us. He says, since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't God who gave up Christ, who also give us anything else? Why didn't God let Jesus off the hook in the garden? Perhaps, as Stephen Pattison says, because in that garden, God was proving beyond the shadow of your doubt, beyond your shame, beyond your unworthiness, how much he loves you. If you wonder if God really loves you, just as you are, if you wonder if God still loves you, despite where you've been, if you wonder if God can keep loving you as often as you failed him, remember this. God would rather send his son through hell for you than to bring him home without you. That's the lesson of the garden. Jesus endured this agony because he loves us. He opened the way of salvation because he loves us. God was willing to sacrifice his precious son because he loves us. Receive his love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus' willingness to be obedient. His willingness to give his life even though he was purely innocent on our behalf for us who were guilty. We are the ones who deserve the death and the suffering and the shame. But Christ was willing to take that on himself so that we might be reconciled to you, so that we might be made innocent and blameless in and through him, and we we might be reconnected to you and to your holiness. God, we thank you for your profound statement of love in and through Christ's life, his suffering, and his death. God, that you are proclaiming just how much you love the world and each and every one of us who make up this world. God, help us to receive this gift of love with gratitude, with thankful hearts, Lord. And God, may it compel us to live for you, to give ourselves as fully as we can to following and living for your mission. May it be so. God, we are so thankful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Do you stand to respond to the message we just received? Take my life and live Consecrated, Lord, to
be seated. In just a minute, we're going to be celebrating with six uh, young uh, people who are being baptized today.